Good morning. Good to see everyone today. We are in Matthew 4. So if you go be turning there. Clearly none of the kids are tempted to stay in the room today. They are often excited about what they're going to get to see. Uh, it's really awesome to see our seniors up here today. Um, it's just great to, um, to see, you know, that's such a big marker in our lives, right? Such a big milestone. Um, high school, 12 years plus whatever they throw on on the front end of that, it's just a big deal, right? And then we saw Tucker's picture, you got college, and, and, and if you, most of them just go straight through it, so it's quite a marathon. So it's, a, I, I mean, I just still remember the feeling of, of being able to say, we've accomplished something finally, I can say I've finished something. So I'm really grateful that we get to stand here and, and celebrate that because it really celebrates the faithfulness of God in their lives. Because as awesome as our youth ministry is here, parents spend the bulk of the time with their kids, right? They're the ones who pour into their kids the most. And, uh, and most teenagers do not end high school well spiritually. It's, it's the minority. So when they do, it's the grace of God, but there were people in their lives that helped make that happen. Hopefully, our youth ministry has reinforced that and stood behind parents and supported and encouraged. But we know that... Without a solid example at home, the right words and the right kinds of actions that mirror those good words, you're, it's really the exception if that happens. So um, you parents are to be congratulated and, um, and just know, we, we know it's God's grace through you, but you, it's hard work. So parents with the little ones, it doesn't just happen, you know this. And the day will come when you don't have to just get through the day and say, I survived. <laughs> it can be better than that. Um, but you're the front lines. That's your ministry. There's no more important ministry um, unless it's to your spouse and then your kids and then everything else. Okay? And our, our heart here is that our youth ministry will come up behind you and support you in that and encourage you and equip you and pray for you and celebrate alongside of you as you do that. So just grateful that we get to be a part of partnering with you in that at Grace. So I also want to pray um, before we get started, um, both for our seniors, but just for our time together today. So let's do that. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time where we can gather physically and virtually to, um, to worship you together. Whether we're gathered in someone's den or whether we're listening to a podcast in the future or whatever, if we're in this room or whether we're down the hall rocking a baby, watching it on a screen, whatever, God, we just are so grateful we can do this freely at this time in our nation. Lord, we know that um, if we were in Ukraine right now, it would be a very different picture. So we even now lift up uh, the believers that are there that are just trying to survive hold things together, keep their family alive. We pray that you'll encourage them. The pastors that are there, the missionaries that are there, as they seek to support their flock, we pray that you'll encourage and help them. Provide for those needs, tangible needs, protection, provision. God, just show up big. And Lord, we could pray for every country in the world, for there are crises happening all around. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not give in to the temptation of despair, but that we would rest in the hope of Jesus Christ, who is the hope of the world, and displays and delivers that hope through the people of God called his church. Lord, you do that most powerfully through your word. 
not just the preached word, not just the taught word, but the lived word. And so, Lord, I pray that whatever is said here would mobilize your people to be the gospel where they live, work, and play. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to imagine that you have a ring that when you put the ring on, you can disappear. Okay? I can remember as a middle school boy laying in bed at night trying to go to sleep going, how cool would it be to be invisible? Um, and, of course, I think of, think of Harry Potter. He has the robe that made him invisible, cloak of invisibility, I think it's called. Um, and then you have the ring in the Lord of the Rings that when Frodo or Bilbo or whoever's wearing the ring puts it on, they're invisible. And just how cool that was to watch. Well, if you follow the whole story, whether it's The Hobbit, whether it's The Lord of the Rings, you know that the ring that can do that in that story has a side effect. And the side effect is a couple of things. One is that this evil villain can see you because he wants the ring and he helps him connect with you. And the other side effect is you begin to basically give into the the temptation that I have power and I want more power and I want more power. Like when you get it, it's not enough. You want more and more and more. And that there's power in being able to be invisible along with all the other things that can go with that. And whether it was Bilbo in The Hobbit or whether it's Frodo in The Lord of the Rings, the temptation to cling to that which would give you power is very strong. And if you don't resist that temptation... You just give in to it more and more and more. And there's a progression that I want to read out of James 1 that describes that really, really vividly. This is James 1, uh, verses 13 through 15. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes to the church, the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are, watch this picture, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And when the New Testament talks about death, it doesn't just mean the body dies, it means your soul is forever separated from your creator. Okay. So it's, this is not just die and then go to heaven. This is die and be separated from heaven forever. So today's message is how do we deal with temptation? And in chapter 4, the first 11 verses, we're going to see up close and personal how Jesus does this. We're going to see his example. And it's going to apply very closely to how we resist and deal with temptation as well. It doesn't matter if we're talking about dealing with temptation for one more slice of pizza one more glass of sweet tea, or something much more serious, okay? Temptation is, is something that snowballs if we don't deal with it. If we don't resist it, if we don't avoid it, if we don't fight it, it's going to continue to come at us, and we're going to lose. And so Jesus gives us a picture of what does it look like to resist temptation, and under the circumstances that he's dealing with, he gives us a lot to think about. He's going to give us five characteristics of his temptation. Matthew is going to give us five characteristics of his temptation that we can then take and apply to our own situation. Okay? So I don't know what your temptation. I had a temptation in college that 
that the Lord has helped me with a great deal. And, and really, once I came to know the Lord as a freshman in college, he dampened it. It didn't make it go away, and I still deal with it. But I had a really bad temper. Like, I could get angry at the drop of a hat over nothing. I'll just give you an example of how bad it was. We had, you know, intramural sports, okay, and you can get competitive in intramural sports. Well, the Baptist Student Union had a co-ed basketball team, and I was only the coach, and I got thrown out by the student refs because of the way I behaved, because of a temper about an intramural game that nobody cared about even at the time, okay? So... I'm not proud of that. I'm, my point is that we can be tempted to do things that we look back on and are embarrassed about when they could have been prevented. The Lord has given us what we need to avoid and resist temptation. Okay? But it, when we do give into it, He also uses it in our lives. The question is will we cooperate? Will we come away learning from that? Now, two weeks ago when we did chapter 3, we were actually talking about, it was talking about repent, repentance, right? We talked about repentance, John the Baptist, repent, 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 which was, we said, is a description of, of, the visual is you're walking this way, away from the Lord, doing life on your own terms, and then God convicts you of sin, meaning he, he shows you the sin, and then you're to the place where you're like, I need to confess sin, and so you do an about face. Well, not quite, because when you confess sin, you don't actually have to repent of it. Confessing is agreeing with God, yes, this is wrong. Repentance is saying, and I don't want to just stop by feeling sorry about it. I want to actually do an about face and walk towards God and do life on his terms with a mindset to change my behavior so that I don't repeat that. Okay? So this is kind of before that. It's almost like we're going backwards and that God is saying, let's not even go to where you need to repent. Let's just... Let's just nip it in the bud. Let's just stop at the point of temptation. Because to be tempted is not sin. Jesus was tempted. This is how we know temptation in itself is not sin. Giving in to temptation is sin. So if I'm tempted to get angry, I can stop and say, no, that's not where I need to be. That's not a holy anger welling up inside of me. And by stopping, I don't act on it and I don't give in to that temptation. Or I can take something and throw it and demonstrate my anger and, and then deal with the consequences. And even last week when we, we took the, the detour to Genesis 16, that one was all about the consequences of sin. You remember Abram and Sarai sinned in the whole Hagar story? And we're still dealing with the sin of those two people 3,000 years later. If you watch the news and you know something about Israeli-Arab tensions, started there. So sin has consequences. We have to repent of it to get right with God. Let's just not do it in the first place. How about we do some preemptive work here and uh, let's try to preventative measures. So what we're going to do, so Matthew's walking us through. We're doing a series through the book of Matthew, if you don't know, and we're just walking through you know, chapter at a time, part of a chapter at a time, and we're just walking through. And Matthew is trying to help us see something, Okay. He's trying to help us see three vivid themes throughout the book of Matthew. He wants us to see all authority. Jesus has all authority so that all nations might follow him with all allegiance. Okay? All authority. Jesus has all authority that all nations might follow him with all their allegiance. And you can find that in the very last verses of the book of Matthew in the Great Commission. It's all right there spelled out for you. So let's, let's walk through this. And, and I want to describe these five characteristics 
I'm gonna, so I'm going to read through it again, describe the five characteristics, and then I'm going to read through it again, and I want to show you what do we do with this? What are some action steps that we can take? Okay, so the characteristics are things that will just teach us, and then the application will come as we go back through it. Because I want you to see where it comes from. Uh, this isn't me coming up with this. I mean, I use commenta- uh, commentaries all the time to help me think through some things that when I read through I missed, but, but I, I want you to just see it in the text. So, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Imagine that. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by, on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, that would be Jerusalem, and had him stand on the highest point in the temple, which would have been the highest point in the city, which would have been the highest point on the plateau. And if you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands. And then, you don't see it, but if you go to look at the reference he's quoting, there's more. He skips that, conveniently, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Just like Satan to take scripture and twist it. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you. It's debatable whether he had that authority. He said, if you'll bow down and worship me, which is Satan's goal. He wants to be God. This is why he got thrown out in the first place. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. So here are the five things I want you to see. And then we're going to go back, and I'm going to show you the application where it comes from. First thing is this, that in Jesus' temptation, God, it was God-ordained temptation, but it was not God-inflicted. Okay, look at the first verse. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Who led Jesus into the wilderness where he was going to be tempted? His heavenly Father, God Almighty, through the Spirit of God, led Jesus into this place where he knew he was going to be tempted. Okay? But then it says, to be tempted by the devil. Okay? So what we know here is that God's not doing the tempting. All right? And we saw that in James 1, 13 through 15. It says, God cannot be tempted by evil, and he doesn't tempt anyone. Okay? Now, this word tempted could also be translated tested. So which is it? Well, the translators in this translation said tempted, tempted seems to fit the context best, but that doesn't mean test doesn't also apply, and I would say both apply here. He is being tempted, and God is using it to test him. Now, when, when we think of a test, we, this has been done before. If you think back, maybe you remember the story, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve in the garden, the serpent shows up in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one tree they're not supposed to eat fruit from, and he says to Eve, did God really say, oh, stop it. Oh, did God really say eat fruit? you can't eat fruit from this tree? And then he begins to deceive her, twisting things and saying things in such a way that she is tempted to eat the fruit. And she goes against what God has clearly said, if not directly to her, directly to Adam who told her, which is the way I think it went, but I don't know. She gave in to the temptation, ate the fruit, gave it to Adam, who didn't seem to have a problem either, and he ate the fruit. So I think he was there. I think he heard the same things that she heard. 
And then when he saw her take a bite and nothing seemed to happen, just weak need, he failed the test. They failed the test. Temptation. Now, you say, well, what, I, I failed temptation test every day. What's one temptation? Let's go back to Jesus for a second in this. What's the big deal? The big deal is here's what's on the line. The cross is on the line. Because for the cross to be the place where our sins are taken care of means that there had to be someone willing to take our place that qualified to be the one that would take our sins upon them. And that meant it had to be someone who was perfect. Unblemished Lamb of God, if you will look back to the Old Testament, all the animals that were, don't, that were given, sacrificed, had to be unblemished lamb or goat or bird or whatever it was, bull. If Jesus sins one time, he's blemished. So there is a miraculous thing that's underway. He's already about 30 years old. He's getting, now he's going into the wilderness. He's being tempted. And if Satan can just get him to give in on one sin, he disqualifies himself from being able to die for our sins. Okay? And it really answers the question, is Jesus really who he says he is, the Messiah, and can he really do all that God says he can do? which is to live the life that we can't live or haven't lived, die the death we deserve to die so that we can then go live for him. Okay? So now look at the contrast in the two venues. Adam and Eve, they're in paradise. They've never sinned, so they don't know what it's like to live having sinned. They don't know about the consequences of sin. And, grant, and, and to their credit, they're, they're going to be pretty naive to temptation. I don't know that they've ever been tempted. I'd be O for whatever, too, if I'd never been tempted and Satan tempts me with something. He's going to know exactly how to tempt you. If it's not tempting, it's not temptation, right? It's going to be tempting. Jesus, in contrast, is in the wilderness, the desert, okay? The weather's always good in paradise, right? It's always the perfect temperature. It never rains, all that good stuff. In the wilderness, it's really, really hot during the day, and it's freezing cold at night, and he's got no shelter, and he's got no good sleeping bag, for the cold. He's just exposed. No shelter, no trees, no, and they've got natural trees. They don't really need shelter. It's like, you know, ideal. They've got all the food you could want to eat, except for that one tree, and he's got no food. He's fasting. I don't know if he's fasting by choice. I don't know if he's been told to fast. It doesn't tell us. It just says he fasted for 40 days for meeting, and he was hungry. Go figure. All right, I'm like 40 minutes and I'm looking for something to eat. Right? So, and then they're together, not just two people, two, one flesh, two people, who also walk with God in the garden in the cool of the evening or something like that every day, and Jesus is all alone. Now, actually, we know he's not all alone. I'll just let you peek behind the curtain. Verse 11 goes, you know, then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. They're watching. They're there, but they've been told, you're not here. Be quieter. I'm going to send you back home. I mean, it's like, you know, he has to be alone. That's part of the test. And yet he passes the test. Jesus does not give in. Now, we're going to learn from how this went down. What are some of the characteristics and things that he did that helped him resist and fight the temptation? All right. So let's keep going. So the first thing is that the, um, the, the temptation of Jesus was ordained by God, but not, um, he didn't cause it, okay? Uh, not inflicted by God is the way I think I said it. The second is that it happened to him, the temptation happened when he was weak in the flesh. When he was weak, he was hungry, he was exposed, so he's probably tired, 
okay? And, I mean, he hasn't been able to watch Netflix for a while, so he's got to be grumpy there, too, right? He's got no reason to be happy or excited um, based on circumstances. He's fasting everything, okay? So when you and I are tired, hungry, thirsty, stressed, in pain, all of those are things that the enemy knows are going to make it harder for you to resist temptation. Sidebar, I think that we could also take away something here on the fasting piece. I think what we're seeing here is Jesus is recognizing, and he's using this because he knows it, that fasting and praying is like a superpower to resist spiritual attack at the expense of physical discomfort. Okay? So there's a price... And isn't that kind of the way superheroes work? There's a cost to do what they do. There's a side effect or a, they have this, you know, Achilles heel kind of thing going on. And it's like he chooses to say no to physical comfort and nourishment that he might gain spiritual strength to resist because it's like nothing else is going to work. Now, again, I don't know if he chose to do it, if he was told to do it. I, I don't know. It doesn't, it, apparently it's not that important or it would have told us, the scriptures would have said so it happens when we're weak in the flesh. We need to be aware of that. We just need to know that. So husbands and wives, when you're about to go at it and the fangs are out and the nails are out and you're just verbally ready to go and slash each other, one of you hopefully is going to have enough sense to go, you know, we are not in a good place. Maybe neither one of us. We need to just chill and back off and, and try this again later. Maybe after we've had dinner. <laughs> Maybe after we've had a nap. Okay. And then, of course, there's the real caution that sometimes we have a relationship with somebody who's never okay. And there's never a good time. And, and I'm just praying that God would wake you up if that's you because you're not believing anybody else because you're so overwhelmed with anger or pain or stress or whatever it is that's got you pinned down that you're not even able to have enough sense to self-awareness to recognize that you're in such a bad place. May God open our eyes to that. Um, the third thing is that the temptation of Jesus was unique, yet universal. Okay? Jesus is unique, right? So, of course, his temptation is going to have to be a little different. When I get tempted, it's not usually after 40 days in the wilderness. <laughs> okay? Now, maybe 40 days. I mean, it could be. No. He. His is unique because it's a unique test for a unique, right, human, Jesus the Christ. But the temptations he's experiencing are not unique. And you and I are tempted by them. Yours might be, your, your um, super one might be different than mine. The one that takes you down might be a different one than mine. But he knows which ones to use and he uses them. He sends them all. And I say he, I mean the enemy. And he doesn't show up personally. He's, he's, he can only be in one place at one time, and I think he's got bigger fish to fry than you and me. But he's got demons, and he's got the worldly philosophies, and he's got the human flesh all working for him. And those are the three sources of our temptation. The human flesh, that's the corrupted human nature, right? The worldly philosophies that swirl around us every day, and, of course, Satan and his legion themselves. Those are the three sources of temptation in our world, all right? So unique to Jesus, universal to humanity, this is why it was important that Jesus showed up as a human 
And it says, and I can take Hebrews 4, 7 maybe. Uh, it might be the other one in Hebrews 2.18 where it says, He was tempted as we are, yet he did not sin. As our high priest, which is one of the many roles Jesus plays in our life, he was tempted as we are, yet he didn't sin. Okay, So I, I just think it's impo- important for us to recognize Jesus c- could have sinned, now, which is a fair question. Wait a minute. Didn't you tell me Jesus is God in the flesh? Can God sin? Wait a minute. That can- okay, so let me see if I can answer that question. So Jesus is fully God. He puts on humanity, so he becomes fully human. Can Jesus sin? Yes and no. Okay? Jesus is still made up of two very different natures. Jesus as God cannot sin because that would go against the nature of a perfect, all-powerful, all-good God. But he put on humanity, which means he could be tempted and could sin. Otherwise, this is a whole, this is a charade, right? This isn't, what's the point of him going through this if he can't be tempted? Is he really, does he even know what temptation is like? And this is why the author of Hebrews goes to the point to say, he was tempted as we are. Well, to be tempted means he has to be able to feel temptation like I am. It means he has to be, he has to know what it's like to be tempted to eat food when he shouldn't. That kind of thing, okay? So, this, this, this fourth characteristic is probably the, the most important as far as leading to application, which we'll come back to. But basically, it's this. The way he resisted temptation was through the Word of God. Every time Satan approaches him with a temptation, he responds, it is written, or he res- and or he responds with Scripture. Now, let's think about this for a second. Jesus could say anything, and it would be as good as Scripture, right? Because it's the Word of God. If Jesus is speaking it, it's good. I'm not saying that he couldn't have said something that wasn't the Word of God, but he never did, because even though he might have been tempted to, he says, I only say what the Father tells me to say. I only do what the Father tells me to do. And he lived a life without sin, so that tells me he's got a good track record of speaking as if it were Scripture. And everything he spoke that we have a record of is Scripture already. But he chooses to quote Scripture. He quotes Moses. He quotes Deuteronomy. That tells me, one, he thinks Scripture is powerful enough to work. He sees it relevant, even though it's in the Old Testament. <gasps> Gasp. And he's giving us an example. Okay? Now, every time we're tempted doesn't mean we have to quote Scripture. But if you and I want to be effective at resisting it, we've got to know it. We've got to know what it says. We've got to know what it means. We've got to know how to interpret it in such a way that it's meaningful to us today. Not that it means something today it didn't mean back then. It can't mean something today it didn't mean back then. That's how you know if you're on or off track. What did it mean back then? Okay, lift the principles out, drop them into 2022, and apply them as, as, that sees, as you see fit. Okay? But you have to know it. You have to invest. Okay, so I don't, I'll come back to that. I'm not done beating that drum. And then the fifth one is, The temptation of Jesus was tough. Tough. And the temptations that come our way are tough. But they're temporary. Look at this. Verse 10. Right? Jesus, this is the third temptation. Jesus said to him, Away from me to Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And what what does the devil do? He leaves. Okay? Jesus ended it. Jesus ended it when he wanted to end it. 
He told him to leave. He only had to tell him once because he knows his place. He may be a, what do we say? He may be a roaring lion, but he's still a lion on a leash. And God is holding on to that leash. Okay, now, let's go back through it. Now, um, I don't want you to take my word for it. I want to go back through this, and I'm just going to point out a handful of things that are practical ways you and I can deal with temptation. Okay, because um, unless you're... Um, Unless you're walking with Jesus perfectly, you're dealing with temptation too. So let's go back through it. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit. Very first thing. He's walking in step with the Spirit of God. Are you walking in step with the Spirit of God? Are you seeking his face? Are you seeking the Lord and saying, I want to walk in step with you today? Walk in a way that's, that's, that's appropriate for the gospel. Walk as children of light. Walk, walk wisely. There's all this imagery in the scripture that talks about how we are to walk with the Lord. In other words, live in such a way that your life is in step with what the Lord would have you do. That's what Jesus said he did. I only say what this Father says to say. I only do what the Father tells me to do. Imagine if we were a church of people that did nothing more but that. It would be a lot less trivia in my life, I can tell you that. My jokes might be be a a lot less dad jokes, although God, he is a father, so he's got his, right? Led by the Spirit into the wilderness. You know, if he sends his son into the wilderness, do you think that you and I are too good to be sent into the wilderness? So don't be surprised when you find yourself in the wilderness, whether you meant to get there or not. You might have even tried to avoid it. That's typically what I do. It's like, wait a minute. Hang it right here. There's AC. You know, I, I don't want to be uncomfortable. And yet the Lord is like, you know what? That's where I, I refine you. A refiner's fire is hot. And just know that when he sends you there, he sometimes is going to allow you to be tempted. Tested. Okay? So don't, don't think that that's not happening for us. But I believe this with all my heart. I believe that God's testing is for one of two reasons. It's to um, teach us something, how to be more like Jesus, right? Or it's to warn us that we're not in class yet. If you don't know the Lord, you're not in class yet. You're not being taught because you're not yielding. You haven't said, you haven't humbled yourself and said, can I come to class? Can I be your follower? Can I be your disciple? And then once you're in class, it's like, okay, there's a test today. Sorry, students, the tests never end. It's pass-fail, too. Kind of challenging. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I I do think that prayer and fasting are, are potent weapons that the Lord has given us to use to give us the ability to resist temptation and to really accomplish a lot of things for the Lord. Um, When we say no to things that our flesh wants, we are disciplining our body so that we can fight the spirit, spiritual battles better. Okay? When I think of, um, uh, when I think of the spiritual battles we're in, I think of Ephesians 6, I think of the armor of God, you have the helmet of truth, You've got the breastplate of righteousness. You've got the belt of truth. I'm sorry, the helmet of salvation. Breastplate of righteousness. Belt of truth, which kind of holds that all together. You've got shoes fitted with the peace of the, the gospel of peace. Okay? And then you've got two items that you hold. You've got the sword of the Spirit, okay, which is the Word of God, which can be 
all this armor is defensive, right? You don't go try to hit people, you, unless you're head butter. I mean, some of you may, but not me. But you know, otherwise, it's defensive. But the sword can be used to defend or attack. Okay? Now, there's the whole thing that we have the high ground because he's already won the battle and we're fighting from a position of victory. But there's still a time in a, in a battle, even in that, where there's um, ebb and flow. You're, you're moving forward or you're advancing or you're retreating, depending. So sometimes you're on the defense, defensive, and sometimes you're on the offensive. And then there's the shield, the shield of faith. So the sword is the word of God. We've already talked about that some. The shield of faith, though, is it, it's designed to extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one who's firing at you. He's firing at you. Okay? Now, if I, it, it's one thing to know that those things are in Scripture. It's another thing to believe that they work. Right? If I, look, this is going to be painful. Okay? Can I, just, can I just lovingly hurt you here for a second? If this is my sword and it sits on my nightstand or on my shelf and it doesn't get opened, I'm not believing that it's really a, a weapon that I can use that matters. I'm seeing it as irrelevant, right? I'm doing life without my, I'm fighting a battle without a sword. The same thing is true with a shield, okay? To use a shield, you have to hold it, believing that if something hits it, it's going to give me some protection, Otherwise, it's laying on the ground, and I'm, getting, I'm catching the darts and the arrows without any... I mean, the, the breastplate of righteousness is only so thick. I'm going to get wounded. I love you, but if you're not in the Word of God and you're not exercising faith in the Word of God, then you're taking arrows and you're taking blows that hurt. And some of those are in the form of temptation that's taking you out. It's causing you to be totally useless for the kingdom, and you're, you're hurting yourself, you're hurting your future, you're hurting your family, you're hurting those closest to you that aren't family, and you're not a part of the mission of God at all. In fact, you could actually be part of the problem. I, okay, so let's keep reading. So um, he says... Then, then he says, the tempter, another name for the devil, another name for Satan. Just to make it very clear, that, that slimy serpent is heavily involved here. The tempter came to Jesus and said, if you are the Son of God. Sounds kind of like Jesus in the garden. Did God really say this you couldn't eat from this tree? If. What is he doing? What's the enemy doing? He's undermining your and my confidence in the Scriptures. He's saying, you can't really trust God. If, you was, if he was really loving... He wouldn't make you be so hungry, Jesus. If he really loved you, Eve, he wouldn't say no to you at, about anything. You could eat all you wanted from this tree. And all the grandparents were like, really? All the ice cream my grandkids want? Yes, I can send them home. Right? It's not good. It's not. And we have to ask ourselves the question, are we allowing the enemy to cause us to doubt who we are? You see, God already answered this question. Jesus comes into this fresh in his mind. Look at 3.17. Matthew, the very last verse of chapter 3. God the Father speaks at the baptism of Jesus, and God doesn't speak out loud very often, but he did hear, and this is why. It's so important. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. It has been said that pleasing God is our purpose for living. 
You could say it's a, it's a, a workman's way of saying glorifying God. I like that. I want to please God. That's why I exist. I'm going to seek to please God for all eternity. It's not something I just do in the here and now. And so he is pleased with his son. He loves his son. He calls him his son, and he does it publicly. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ because you have surrendered your life, humbled yourself, and said, I want to be born again, I want to, be, I want to repent of my sins and turn to Jesus who died on the cross for my sins, then you're a son or a daughter too. Every bit as much as Jesus. Well, I'm not like Jesus. No, you're not, and neither am I, okay? That's the grace of God. That's the mercy of God that we're not and we don't deserve, and yet it's ours. Okay? Remember who you are. Remember whose you are. He could say this of you. This is my son or daughter whom I love. I don't know if he could say if I'm well pleased with you or not. I, mean, I know with me. It's, but you know what I'm saying? What's the pattern of your life? Does it reflect Jesus? Well, then maybe he would say, I'm pleased with the majority of your life. You know, I don't know what he would say. He looks at the pattern. He looks at the heart. You've got to remember who you are. Because when you forget who you are, and I forget who I am, then we have an identity crisis, and we start living like the lies we start to believe. You know, some, and I hate it when people do this, and I genuinely understand why people do it, but I really just don't like it. When people say, well, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Yes, you were a sinner who still sins. You're a saint. You're no longer a sinner if you're in Christ Jesus. You might sin... And I get what you're saying. You're a saint who sins. But if you're a saint in the Lord, which means a holy one made holy by the blood of Christ, then you are not a sinner by identity anymore. That is not who you are. That's the point. He saved you from that. So you don't have to be that. You don't have to go, well, I'm a sinner, so I'm just going to keep sinning. No. Stop it. You're a saint that sometimes sins. That's why every time Paul opens his letter, a lot of times it's like, to the saints in Philippi. Well, I'm glad I'm not in Philippi because I would disqualify that letter. You know, they were just like you and me, saints who sometimes sin. Okay? You don't have to sin. I know that's a controversial statement. But if Jesus became human and showed us how to trust the Father walking by grace through faith, then we can too. Can we do it consistently? I understand the odds are practically zero. But don't use that as an excuse to say, well, I'm going to sin, it's inevitable. Well, with that kind of attitude, maybe. But don't have that kind of attitude. Don't believe that you have to do it. You, it is not inevitable that you and I give in to temptation. We don't have to do this. Jesus' answer is written. So remember what, what Jesus did. He's using scripture. It is written was shorthand, Jewish shorthand for word of God. Words that are breathed, spoken, written by God himself. Okay, it is written, and in this case, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. On every word. Okay? Now, I understand there are some things in the scriptures that Jesus has fulfilled, and we don't have to obey those particular things. I don't have to build an 18-inch parapet around the roof of my house. Okay? That's a civic code. I don't have to sacrifice bulls and goats the old religious sacrificial system, I don't have to do that. But there are principles in the Old and New Testament that are, that are still for us today, and we need to obey those, every one of them, okay? And so how do you know if you are if you don't know the Word of God? 
Well, ignorance is bliss. I don't think so. You might want to rethink that saying. Jesus answered, okay, we said that. Then the devil took him to the holy city, that is Jerusalem, and he had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are, there he goes again, if you are the son of God, and of course Jesus knows that he is, throw yourself down, for it is written. Um, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands. Let me, let me look, show you what he left out. Psalm 91. Verses 11 and 12 is where he's quoting. I'm going to read it. You follow along in Matthew, and I'm going to read 11 and 12, and you'll see what he leaves out. I'll emphasize it too. So on the screen, let's put Matthew, where are we? Matthew, is that right? Matthew 6? Yep. Okay. Here we go. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. In all your ways. And then if you go to the very first verse in Psalm 91, it says, Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Okay? So if you are dwelling in the shadow of the Most High, if you are resting in His shadow, if you are walking in all His ways, then those verses 11 and 12, well, those verses are true. But He leaves that out. Because why? Because He's just trying to manipulate Him. Trying to get Him to do something. Jesus answered Him, It is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay? Your students don't get to give the test. Okay? All right, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Okay? Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. This is, an, an, this is very practical. When, when you know you're being tempted, if you say no, he will go. If you say no... He will go. All right? In the name of the Lord Jesus, who died for me on the cross so that I could live for him, no, I'm not giving in to that temptation. And I would say it out loud. I don't have a problem with you saying it out loud. Um, you might think about where you are when you say it and who's around, but you, never, you know what I'm saying. Okay? Away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God, serve him only. Um, Worship and service are two sides of the same coin, literally the same word in Scripture, worship and service. Interesting that we sometimes call this a worship service. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended to him. Remember, the, temp the, the temptations are temporary, even though they're tough. Okay? And so uh, you get some practical, okay? Face, uh, I'm not going to review them all. You, you saw practical applications. The question is, what are you going to do about this going forward? And I think you're going to know that it's got to involve this and faith that this is what works, okay? And I think if you go and pick this up and start reading it with that heart mindset, you are exercising faith. Like when you say a prayer to God, you can't see him, you can't hear him, you can't touch him, you can't, you know, it's like, so if you're praying, then you're exercising faith. Now, the question is, what God are you praying to? And hopefully you're praying to the God of Scriptures. You can say, I'm, I'm praying, Lord Jesus, you know. It's hard to get it mixed up if you include Lord Jesus in it, okay? So, but if we want to stop sinning and be the saints God has created us and saved us to become, then let's live like it, all right? Now, let me give you one more picture and we'll close. So, um, I was on a ski trip in 2000, 
one with the youth group. And we, had a, we, we actually um, had a worship service that night. We were all exhausted and could barely stay awake. But we were in this big auditorium, and the guy got up there, and he did this picture, and I'll never forget it. He said, there's two ways we approach sin as Christians. One is good and one is not. He says, if I'm not supposed to sin, I'm not supposed to do that. But we Christians tend to do this. We tend to walk backwards and say, um, I don't want to sin. So, I'm kinda, so it's like a road with ditches on both sides. You know, sometimes the old gravel roads in the country, they have ditches for drainage on the sides, and you're backing down the road, right? And, and if you're trying to do that with a car, that's not easy. You're not, you know, having to use the mirrors and look out the back window. Oh, I'm supposed to do it this way, you know, and you're, you're trying to... And, and it's easy. If you're not careful, you can end up in the ditch. Now, you're not sinning, but are you, you're not driving with confidence. You're not, you're, and you could easily end up the ditch. This is what the Lord says. Matthew 6, we'll get to this not too long from now. 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Okay? If I would just simply turn around and put my eyes on the road, right? looking at Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith, I'm not going to end up in the ditches. Because I'm just driving. I'm just seeking. I've got my eyes on what I'm supposed to be heading towards. And so instead of ending up in the ditch, which is not hard to imagine driving backwards, trying to avoid sin, how about I just focus on the kingdom and sin will take care of itself. It will stay out of the way. Not that you're not going to be tempted. Not that we won't be tempted. We will be. Especially when we start getting good at that driving straight at Jesus. Okay, but now we know some of the warning signs. When I'm tired, when I'm hungry, when I'm stressed, when I'm in pain, right? Um, when I'm in the wilderness, sometimes I get there because cho- by of my actions. Sometimes the Lord leads me there, okay? And on all through these characteristics, okay? Keep your eyes on Jesus. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Also, by the way, no extra charge for this, totally free. It's also the cure for worry. But you'll see that in chapter 6. Let's pray. Lord, um, we come to you humbled by the reality that even though we have the spirit of the living God living in us, empowering us to not sin, that we still do. We are humbled that we give in to temptation as if the world had something to offer us better than what you offer us. We repent. We confess our sins, but we also say, Lord, we want to think differently so that we make better decisions that lead to better actions. God, we cannot do this without you. We need your spirit to work in us just continuously, helping us keep our eyes on you. Lord, right now, we may be burdened with a lot of guilt. Lord, I pray that everyone leaves this room leaving the guilt behind because, Lord, you tell us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I pray right now we would confess those sins in our hearts just silently to you. We would just say, Lord, I repent of this sin. I repent of that sin. I repent of uh, the sin of not wanting to open my Bible. Give me the desire to open and read and immerse myself in the word of God, not just to know it, but to, to live it. Forgive me for my words to other people. Forgive me for my temper. Forgive me for my, um, my 
unholy, unrighteous actions when nobody's looking. Forgive me for the things that I look at that have no business in my, in my head and yet overflow into my life. Cleanse me by the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins so that we could walk freely and forgiven. Give us the faith we need to believe that to an extent that it changes the way that we live. Help us individually and help us collectively to do this better. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen.